one of my favorite edits recently, I'm, this is a humiliating story to tell you, so I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it, is that I had written a speech for her recently, and it was just very small edits throughout. And then on the last page, she puts a box around the last like four paragraphs, and she writes, know when to end <laughs> next to it. <laughs> because it really just went on too long. <laughs> and I thought, oh, you're right. You're right. That's really good <laughs> advice. I do, I do know, need to know when to end. That is Megan Rooney. She's one of Hillary Clinton's speechwriters, and I talked to her for this week's episode of With Her, Hillary Clinton's official campaign podcast. We talked about all kinds of things, but mostly what we talked about is how, as a writer, Megan has come to uh, understand the way Hillary works, the way she thinks, and the way she talks. Hey, Megan. Hello. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to the podcast. Thank you very much. Do you travel around a lot? I go on every trip that she does a speech, that a big speech that I've written. Do you get time with her before those speeches? Like, do you sit down with her and get a sense of what she wants to say? Rarely. We're often not in the same place. So we get emails. We hop on calls a lot. I don't want to overstate things. But I think after this many years of working for her and writing for her, my first draft of something is usually pretty close to what she's thinking or what she wants to say. Not always. There are plenty of times where she'll get a draft and be like, mm, no, actually, I want to take this. You know, this isn't I feel like you've missed the mark here. But the result of all of this time is that I think I need a, a less less of that input at the front in order to get the process going. How long have you been with her? When, how did this start? So I worked for a uh, speech writing firm in Washington in my 20s, my, my from like 23 to 28 a firm called West Wing Writers. And from there, I went to Chicago to write for Michelle Obama for the last like four months of the 2008 campaign. And then we won. And I came back and was hired to write for Secretary Clinton, uh, which was like a super dream. This is somebody who I've been admiring since I was 11 or 12. She was my she was my senator in New York. She's the best. So I wrote for her for those four years at State. So she started in late January of 20, 2009. He was inaugurated on the tw January 20th, and she started on like January 29th or right. something. I started in early February. When you got that job, what like what happens first? Do you get to like go have coffee with her somewhere? Certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> She's uh, just so unfathomably busy. Anytime you think that you understand how busy Secretary Clinton is, you just, oh my gosh, it's so much busier than you could possibly dream. I met her early. I met her like a few days after I started in the State Department. And Lisa Muscatine, the woman who hired me, who was her longtime speechwriter from back in the, the White House days uh, and who was also a wonderful mentor to me and still is, she took me to, to meet her. <laughs> she said, this is Megan Rooney. And the secretary said, Megan, it's very nice to meet you. Uh, so I don't know if you caught that, but she pronounced my name Megan. Yeah. And I had said to Lissa earlier, who also had said Megan, I said, it's this is such a small thing, Lissa. I'm so sorry to do this. It's Megan. It's not Megan. It's so subtle. Don't worry about it. Uh, so and then the secretary says this. And I thought, don't do it, Lissa. Don't do it, Lissa. And Lissa was like, actually, ma'am, it's not Megan. <laughs> it's it's Megan. And and Hillary was like, uh, Megan, Megan. Megan. And I thought, oh man, just, you can call me anything. I just, I can't believe you just were corrected on that. <laughs> and then we were off to the races. I She left on like February 1st or so, 2013. 
And many, several of us left like four days later. Yeah. <laughs> we were so ready to take a break. How do you figure out how to write in someone else's voice? It takes a lot of time and work. Sometimes there are, for, I think everyone has a different process for this, I'm sure. For me, there were a few moments that were really uh, helpful and something clicked. An early thing was Lissa, the woman who hired me, my boss there at the State Department, who had written for the secretary for a long time. She handed back an early draft, and she had just put a line through every adjective and every adverb and said, you know, she really doesn't. She She's more unadorned than this. She wants to be declarative. She wants to make an argument that is as strong as it can be. And when you use a lot of adjectives and adverbs, that's actually sometimes a substitute for really knowing what you're trying to say. So you're trying to sort of strengthen your case or make a more vivid you know, I've image. I literally or no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> it turns out that's just a great piece of writing advice for anybody. And <laughs> yeah. I look back on early drafts and shudder at how florid it is and how squishy my thinking was. It's not a hard and fast rule by any means, but that's that's helpful. And then there was another early insight. I realized that, you know, like a parallel story would be that I this, I don't know if I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent, but I have an aunt who is a principal of a, an elementary school. And she just remember once describing herself as a, like her philosophy of being a teacher and a principal is that it's very child centric. It's focused on the kid. And I thought that seems super obvious. Isn't that everything? Isn't everyone who in the world is a teacher or a principal and not focused on the kid? And she was like, oh, no, no, you could be focused on the, the teacher could be the center of your philosophy. It could be about the parents. It could be about the curriculum. If you have a particular curriculum in mind, you're driving that. If you're focused on the child, it actually does change everything about the decisions that you make, about you know how you organize everything. It's like, are the kids okay? I don't care about if the teachers don't like it. I don't care about if the parents are annoyed by it. Is this what's best for the kids? So similarly with Hillary, she really thinks about people. She thinks about how a policy will affect a family, a child, a mother, a citizen somewhere, a person. And that might seem kind of obvious, but it actually totally isn't. If you, There are people who are motivated in policy, especially foreign policy, by thinking about states, by thinking about leadership, or they think about the po- they're motivated by the policy because they love this policy and they really want it to succeed, and they're convinced that everything will follow from that. So if you're really actually focused on, wait, how does this actually impact people, how does this affect their daily lives? That that actually is different, and it does have an effect on everything else. So once I sort of realized that about her, it made it easier for me to write something that spoke to who she, you know, to that kind of reflected her thinking, which is that policies aren't abstract. They're not just arguments or ideas. They, when Im- implemented, change things in people's lives. And the question is, do they do them for the better or for the worse? And you can measure that. And if you don't know how to measure it, you got to figure out how to measure it because you need to do it. And then you need to collect the data and then you need to like revise the policy to make it. So it's a constant process, but it's about people. Can you remember when you figured that out? Like, was there? Well, I saw I would I would write speeches. She would give them. I'd print out the transcripts and I'd compare what she did. She she changes a lot. What kind of changes does she make? Generally, uh, she just extemporizes an enormous amount. So I I remember early on thinking like, oh, 
she's changing so much. I guess that means she doesn't love what I wrote. And Liz yeah, was like, no, 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 no. This is great. You're giving her something that she can work with. You're, she's using it as a launch pad. It gets her thinking and, and she adds to it or it gets her thinking in a new way. And then she'll do a, she'll kind of take it in a different direction. Sounds like a job where you like, you, you need to have some confidence. You got to have like a sturdy ego it's for this work. It's very funny that I find it, it's a, it's an interesting ego, I think, because you do have to have a you have to have a certain core sense of confidence in your value yeah. <laughs> as a person. <laughs> and then you need to have a really high standard for yourself. I, I personally think you need to have a very high standard for yourself. You really need to deliver excellence. You need to try very hard to not just make sure that everything is accurate and clean and grammatical and like comprehensible to the ear, not the eye, because you're hearing, not reading, which is different. You can't go back as a listener and like re- like reread that last paragraph to make sure you got it. It's gone. But you also, I think, have to have a really high standard for insight and um, truth, like getting to something true, saying something real that makes people think, okay, that's not just speech nonsense. That's not just platitude. That's real. But then, so that's ego. You've got to have like a really high ego in all those ways. And then you have to have no ego in other ways right. because it's not yours at all. This piece of writing does not belong to you. It belongs to you if you're, if you were like me, a speechwriter at the State Department, this is the product. This, is belong, this represents America. This represents the American people. This represents the government, the Obama administration. And if you're on the campaign, this is about the campaign, you know. Mm-hmm. So you have to have really no ego at all when it comes to throwing it out or deleting things or revising things that you think really are great and everyone's like, it's just not. <laughs> you got to get rid of it. Do you feel like you're getting smarter writing for her? Definitely. Yes. Yes, for sure. She's really, really, I mean, this is like the most obvious thing anyone's ever said. Hillary Clinton is very, 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 very smart. <laughs> she makes everything that you write smarter with her changes. There's this thing I've now experienced myself, which people have said about her all the time, right? Which is that when you are alone with her in a very small group with her, she's magnetic and charismatic and this fantastic mm-hmm. listener. And and I have been totally kind of unnerved by how comfortable and calm and warm she has been. Yeah. How do you bring that person onto a stage? Like, how do you show that side of her or help people connect with that person who, how, how do you bridge that gap? Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely hard. I think that speeches aren't always the best vehicle for that because, you know, it's a little it's a little out of speech. You're standing alone, you're facing a crowd, you're orating, you're speaking, they're receiving it. It's not very interactive. It's literally staged. These things are all that all makes it a little hard for it to be the most you know, natural and real human connection. Taking all that for granted, you know, stories obviously make a big difference. There's analysis of what people remember when they leave a speech, and they tend not to remember the good line, and they tend not to remember that startling fact. They remember a story. So if you really want someone to to remember something, you should put in a story. So we tell stories uh, from her life. We tell stories of people that she's met. Beyond that, what I really strive to do is to figure out, like, what is the true thing she is trying to convey? And that might sound kind of obvious, but actually it can take a little digging to get to the thing because, okay, so say that you're giving a speech. We gave a, She gave a speech the other day about people with disabilities. 
and you know making sure that we create a country and an economy and a system of education and everything else where people of all levels of ability are able to whatever their mental or physical situation they're able to participate and contribute so there's like the top line sentence we want to create an economy that welcomes everybody and a country that welcomes everybody okay but why well because you know, in America, we believe that people should be able to contribute. All people should be able to contribute, not just a chosen few. Well, why? Well, okay, underneath that, it's because people have something to contribute at every level. And if we, okay, well, what's underneath that? Well, it's because we're not necessarily looking for it. We're not identifying it. We're not seeing it. Uh, we need to, we need to do work to make sure that we recognize people's contributions. So that you kind of just like keep kind of going underneath layer by layer, and you try to figure out what's like the true thing at the bottom of all of it. The thing, though, I think is that a lot of time in political speeches, you're content with that first layer, mm -hmm. just the declaration of what we're trying to accomplish. And I think that through a speech in terms of what people, people being able to kind of get to see who she is, I definitely think that we as her speechwriting team strive to fill that gap, bridge that gap as much as we can. Um, through stories, through insights into her thinking, through, you know, when she talks about policy by giving it to, by, by putting it in language that doesn't just, doesn't seem bloodless, but conveys the the principles behind it that really matter to her. And, you know, the people that she's trying to reach through those policies and the people she's trying to help, all of that. I also think that a lot of times it's the stuff that she, invariably actually, it's the stuff that she brings, it's the stuff that she adds, it's the changes that she makes to a draft. And it's the stuff that she extemporizes in, in delivering the draft, the speech, that go even further because she really uses a speech more as a kind of a, a, a starting point and then will add an enormous, a great deal in the, in the delivering of it. Have you written a speech on this campaign that was a thing that you had already done a lot of thinking about? Has there been, has there been a speech that you have written for her that you yourself have gotten to that place that hurts? Yeah, a lot. This is something that I actually feel really strongly about, so I'm glad you asked it, which is that I think that one of the things about being a speechwriter and trying to learn someone's voice or trying to learn how someone thinks, I think that's super important, and you've got to be a really thoughtful listener, and you've got to be a thoughtful reader, and you've got to try really hard to do that work. I also think that being a good speechwriter is, you know, it's you are a part of that. You, When I sit down to write, I am, I am her staffer, and I am someone who's thought a lot about her. I also am Megan Rooney. I am my parents' daughter. I am my grandparents' granddaughter. I have a lot of my own thoughts and experiences, everything I've ever read, everything I've ever done, that's all rattling around in here. And that I bring that to the work. And this is something that I think is really important for new speechwriters to to know and internalize, is that like you are a part of this. If there's something that you have has occurred to you that you think would be valuable. You should put it in the draft. You aren't just like a robot processing the, you know, like the inputs are Hillary and the output is the speech. It goes through you. So for me, there are some speeches in particular that, or some topics in particular that I've really done a lot of thinking on and reading about. A lot of sort of social justice stuff, a lot of stuff about women and girls, about LGBT people, American and around the world, a lot of stuff about race. These are things that I've just, I've thought a lot about. I've surrounded myself with friends and a community that think a lot about this stuff. We've had a lot of conversations about it. I do think that, and this is me just being a real egotist, I think that this is one of the things that I'm able to bring to this, to this work and to being a good staffer for her and to being like an asset to her team is that 
I spent a lot of time and a lot of years thinking and reading and just kind of mulling this stuff. There's a whole raft of issues that I haven't done that thinking about. Right. Um, I've like spent a lot less time thinking about the economy. I've spent a lot less time thinking about foreign policy. So that takes a little more work for me to make sure that I'm writing things that aren't just accurate, but are like smart and rich and reflect the complex topic at hand. And that's where I rely on my colleagues a lot more and I, you know, ask for other people to help me get there. Okay. So some speeches on this campaign are about issues, policy. Some speeches on this campaign are about putting forward a vision for how this country will work. Uh, There's a different kind of speech also uh, that is about Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. You wrote maybe the most memorable of those speeches. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how you approach writing about her opponent. Yeah. So the first big speech that we wrote taking on Donald Trump was it was a national security speech that she delivered in San Diego. And back then, it's easy to forget. It was just a few months ago, but it's still somehow easy to forget, I think, that no one yet in the campaign, including everyone that he went up against on the Republican side, had really figured out how to really take him on in a speech. No one had done it. They sort of tried to in debates or in speeches, and it never worked. And the other thing that I think it's important to remember is that until this election, Hillary Clinton has never been in a in a general presidential election. So we saw for, the, for the, all the primaries, we saw a bunch of Republicans sort of trying and failing to take on Trump effectively. And then we saw Hillary Clinton in a primary battle with her colleague from the Senate, Bernie Sanders, with whom she shares a great deal of opinions and visions. So it's like that's not a big fight on the issues or on character because they agree on a lot. So suddenly this moment came where now we're in the general and she's the presumptive nominee and he's the presumptive nominee and it's a chance for her to take him on. So we <laughs> we I laugh because it was it was fun. Um, it was very serious. It was a national security speech, and the issues at stake when it comes to national security in this election, I can't. It's there. It's like nuclear weapons. It's it's climate change. It's like the most important stuff that we face as a species. It's all at stake, and yet, it was kind of fun to be in a, in the general and to be able to really draw the contrast and say, like, this person is wrong on this stuff and they have the wrong, he has the wrong ideas. So we we knew we wanted to do a national security speech that made the case that Donald Trump is wrong on these issues and not just wrong, but dangerous, that he's dangerously ill-informed and that his ideas are dangerous <laughs> and more likely to lead to war than peace. It was a little tough to figure out how to do it because, you know, we hadn't done it before. There was a small group of us. Uh, so the four of us kind of sat down. We started, we made a list, basically, of everything that Donald Trump has said in the national security speech, space rather, that is bad and wrong and troubling. And it's just unbelievable. The list just like went on and on and on. And, and someone would say, remember what he said about John McCain and how prisoners of war aren't heroes because they got caught? Yeah. Oh, remember that time that he said that he knows Putin because they were on the Today Show together and or the 60 Minutes together and that's how he knows him? Yeah, that's that's a crazy thing to say that you know somebody because you guys were on the same interview show. We made that list. We wrote a draft. Secretary Clinton had a few major comments on it. 
One is that she really wanted to make sure that this was equally her making her positive case. So not just get a load of all this crazy stuff this guy has said, which is fun, but like of limited utility, perhaps. And instead, here's what he says. Here's why it's bad. Here's what I believe instead. There are people who can gleefully take him apart and just leave it at that. I think that she believes that her role is not just to do that, but to also do the other thing, which is to, yeah, make the positive case for why, not just why he believes what he believes is wrong, but also why what she believes is right. And I also think that as much as she she wants to be direct about when she disagrees with somebody or when she thinks that what he or anybody says is dangerous, she doesn't want to just end it there. That's not that's not who she is. You know, she's not like a hater. She wants to she wants to do something positive with that time and with that that moment, whether it's a speech or an interview or anything else. She's not going to be comfortable with it just being one sided in that regard. So on that speech, she really pushed for us to do this other thing, which is to make sure that we wherever we could, we're putting forth our positive agenda. And I think it made for a way better speech without having to lose any of the fun stuff. The fun stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then we flew out to California and she had edits on the plane. It was very sweet. She sat on the the arm, my armchair like the, and she put her arm around me and she, she said something like okie dokie artichokey, which is something that my, uh, my little sister who is a, an elementary school teacher says that a lot or easy peasy lemon squeezy. That, that might be the one. I forgot. She was one of the other ones. And she I said okie dokie artichokey on the podcast too. <laughs> Pretty, pretty sure. I can, and fa- it was I can just, fact check. She it was that. very warm, and she was like, "Here, here are my edits." And there were there. Were, she had plenty of edits, uh, but they none of them were like the big like you know. I think we we made a mistake here. I think this is the wrong path, which is nice because the speech was the next day. And if she had said we're on the wrong path, we would have done it. We would have figured it out. We would have pulled it off. But it's always better when you're twelve hours out and you've got something that's close to final. Because. Making Donald Trump our commander-in-chief would be a historic mistake, and it would undo so much of the work that Republicans and Democrats alike have done over many decades to make America stronger and more secure. It would set back our standing in the world more than anything in recent memory, and it would fuel an ugly narrative about who we are, that we're fearful, not confident, that we want to let others determine our future for us instead of shaping our own destiny. That's not the America I know and love. So yes, we have a lot of work to do to keep our country secure, and we need to do better by American families and American workers, and we will. But don't let anyone tell you that America isn't great. Donald Trump's got America all wrong. We are a big-hearted, fair-minded country. The stakes are high, right? The stakes are high. We're talking about a presidential election, a pretty monumental one. Uh, The stakes are really, really high. And I spent a few years writing for President Obama in the White House. And the thing that I knew before then probably, but really connected for me when I went there, is how in the United States, what the president says and what the president believes and how the president like comports his or herself who they meet with, who they listen to, you know, like that has such an enormous impact on the country, on how people feel. (laughs) And I don't think it's quite like that in other countries, you know, whether or not other presidents or prime ministers have really 
I mean, leadership matters in every country and what you have to say and what you believe about various issues. Of course, that matters in other countries. But there's something about the American president that it just has such an enormous impact. And by the way, not just in America, but around the world. So when the American president stands up and says LGBT rights are human rights, that's that's not that's those aren't just words like that's something that really matters to people everywhere. Uh, or if an American president hopefully one day is able to say, you know, I know what it's like to have to fight for maternity leave, or I know what it's like to be a woman in a room full of men and to feel like your voice isn't heard, and I want to make sure that that's not what happens to women here or elsewhere. Or or um, something that she has said a lot, which is, you know, I was a woman born in America. And that meant that a bunch of things were able to happen for me. But women born in other countries, that is not what happens. And I could easily have been one of those women. Like that, that's when someone of that stature says something like that, that's a really big deal. It changes the way people feel. It changes the way people see themselves. And it can change policy and it can change law. Like that's, and that's, you know, enshrined change. So, yeah, I do think the stakes are really high. And I think these things matter. I think that when she gets up and gives a speech about anything, it matters. But especially when it has to do with, like, who is human? <laughs> Whose humanity do we see? Whose, whose lives do we count? And whose lives matter? Like, that's, that's, that's a big deal. And I really, I've tried, I, this whole campaign has tried very hard to, to do right on those fronts. And I'm really proud of us. I'm proud of you, too. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> hey, Megan, thank you. Okay, thank you very much. This was really fun. Thanks for listening to With Her, Hillary Clinton's official campaign podcast. I'm Max Linsky. That was Megan Rooney. You can listen to all of our previous episodes at hillaryclinton.com slash podcast or itunes.com slash with her. We'll see you soon. Hey, it's Max. I just want to make a point, which is uh, this podcast is done by the Hillary Clinton campaign. And the whole point of this thing is November 8th when you vote. Go to IWillVote.com. That's IWillVote.com. It has everything you need to know about how to vote on November 8th. I uh, have strong feelings about who you should vote for, but it's your choice. Just do it. The point is do it. IWillVote.com. 